Luke 24, 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, we, we come this morning thanking you for these words of hope. And we ask that regardless of where we are in process with you this morning, because some of us are very excited to be here and worshiping with you, others of us are struggling. We felt close to you once, and yet now you feel like you're just a million miles away, and we so desperately want to reconnect with you. And others of us here are just trying to figure out how we found ourselves at church this morning. But regardless of where we are, meet us, Lord. Help us to hear and to see and encounter you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. um, Today, I have the privilege of preaching our 60th and final sermon on the Gospel of Luke. Can you believe it? It's been 60 sermons. Um, We started our sermon series back on October 18th, 2020. Before the last presidential election, before the last two World Series, you know, a lot has happened since then. And, you know, uh, David and I want to repent of the pace that we have been moving through this series. Um, But in all seriousness, but I do hope this series, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, has drawn you closer to Jesus. You know, and I know some of you are thinking, wait, didn't we finish last Sunday when Jesus was resurrected? And um, yes, we sort of did. But as you can see, it ends in a different way because Luke doesn't end the gospel with Jesus's resurrection. No, it's as if he's telling us, look, wait, there is just one more thing. And it's pretty important. You know, for those of us of a certain age, you may remember the detective show Columbo, where he always has that just one more thing, 
Or if you're an Apple fan, you might remember Steve Jobs borrowing this every time he did a reveal. Just one more thing. But Luke is giving us something. He's saying there is just one more thing you need to understand. And our passage begins at verse 36, where we see the disciples are talking about these things. What are these things? We saw last week the resurrected Jesus appeared to a group of women who came to the tomb, including who? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. And after they meet the resurrected Jesus, they run back to the disciples and tell them what they saw and witnessed. And in verse 11, it said, But these words seemed to them, these are the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe him. The disciples did not believe Jesus was resurrected. So in verse 36 here, it begins with them talking about the two people on the road to Emmaus who met Jesus and how Jesus appeared to Simon. And they're taking into account everything that happened in this day with the women who said, we saw Jesus too. And suddenly appears in the room and he didn't knock. Jesus materializes and says to them, peace to you, shalom. That's kind of scary because we know in John chapter 20, the doors were locked, we're told, because the disciples were afraid of the Jews. So they are startled, they are scared, they are terrified. But by the end of the chapter, and this is how the Gospel of Luke concludes, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. How do you go from they are startled, they are frightened, okay, to the end of the chapter where they now have not just joy, but they have great joy. They have literally mega joy. That's what it says in Greek. And you have an echo of Jesus' birth, which the angels announced in Luke chapter 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. See? Same word, mega joy here. And we know from the book of Acts, their lives are so transformed, they go out to be witnesses of the gospel to the ends of the earth and literally change the known world. Okay? So we want to ask, how did they get to experience great joy when the passage begins with all of these doubts and fears and troubles? What does the resurrected Christ offer them, do for them, and also offer us today? Because perhaps you're full of fear, trouble, doubt. You're, you're not sure. Maybe Jesus has just one more thing in mind for you today. Okay? The first thing I want us to see is Jesus actually gives his assurance. He assures them. Look at verse 38. He says, what? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He says, see me, touch me. He's telling them, it is me. You know, they can't believe this is happening. They're pinching themselves literally in disbelief. And he says, just to make sure, let me show you. By the way, do you have anything to eat? They give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it right before them. Basically, he's saying, I am real. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I am physically here. He assures them that he really has been raised. They have yet to believe that this is true. 
that this is the same Jesus who was nailed to the cross, the one that spent three years with them, the one who explained to them that he would be betrayed, crucified, and then rise again on the third day. And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for abandoning him, for not believing him or the women, okay? But rather he assures them that all that they heard is true. What the women said, what the other disciples said. And I'm not going to go into all of that because David uh, did a great job last week in filling this out. So you can listen to the sermon online if you miss it. But Jesus invites all the disciples to touch him. Because he wants them to be convinced that he has risen from the grave. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so crucial? Because if you read through the rest of the chapter here, if the disciples are going to proclaim Jesus as Lord, as King, as, his, as Savior, if they are going to share this truth and even be willing to die for him, they have to be sure. They have to have absolute assurance of his resurrection. And this is the first thing I want us to see about this passage here. Sometimes it's just not enough for us to hear about Jesus. Okay? They've heard a lot about the resurrection of Jesus already on this first Easter day. But what they needed was to actually meet Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about here? The 11 heard about the resurrection, but they dismissed it. And it isn't until they had an encounter with the risen Christ that their lives are actually transformed. And you see Jesus here coming and arguing with them, okay, about what is possible, that they themselves were not convinced. You know, and some of you maybe fit into this category. You have actually a lot of doubts about Jesus. You've heard a lot about Jesus. Some of you grew up in the church. The church is a very significant part of your life. You know the Bible. You know all the right answers. You know who Jesus is. You know, his teaching, the cross, the resurrection. But you know what? You're, you've not met this risen Jesus. You've not met him. You've heard about him. You know a lot about him. You're kind of like halfway in with him. You know others whose lives seem to be so changed by meeting Jesus. But you're like, I'm missing something here. And it's when these 11 disciples finally meet the resurrected Jesus... They see, they believe, they understand. They begin to understand that he lived and died, not in a general way, but for their sins. That he was victorious to defeat sin and death, not in a general way, but for them. Because the resurrection becomes an assurance of his love to them. See? And here's the first thing. So have you met Jesus? Have you met this Jesus that the scriptures describe here? You know, uh, John, in 1 John chapter 1, this is how he starts his letter. Think about this passage and think about what he writes. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's saying, we saw him, we touched him, and we want you to experience this too. That you and I can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Because I want you to have this assurance as well. Because these first eyewitnesses are saying, believe us and come join us in experiencing this new life. And for some of you, this has been a barrier for you. You're you're having a hard time crossing this, although so much of this is very familiar. And I pray that God would show you and meet you in your doubts and assure you. And we hope you take the steps necessary to do that. Join in this Exploring Christianity conversation if this is something that you are deeply struggling with. And you're like, this is one of the hardest things to get over for me. To come to an understanding of Christ. But Jesus shows up to assure. And he wants to do that for you. The second thing is, not only does he assure them, but he actually gives them a mission. As his witnesses, the followers of Christ are to proclaim something. Look at verse 47. They're supposed to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. They're given a new mission. Remember, not too long ago, how all of the disciples were arguing who would be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Remember that? They were thinking, okay, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when your administration is now in power on this earth, I'm going to have a pretty nice spot in your cabinet. Jesus is saying, and had been saying all along, you guys have this all wrong. And finally, Jesus recommissions them with these words to tell them, none of that stuff you were thinking about really matters. Because the resurrection calls us to be witnesses of something of eternal value. You know, all of these men probably had their version of a first century bucket list. I would imagine for things like family, to be respected, to find love, you know, to find a place in society. Whatever their hopes and dreams for themselves were is no longer central. Yes, those things matter, but they are no longer the main things that drive them. And Jesus is telling us that if we become followers of his, this is possible for you and also for me. That we actually gain a new purpose, a new longing of our hearts to see something beautiful come together because we are so convinced that Jesus actually came and accomplished something that actually changes the world. That there is forgiveness of sins, that repentance actually matters. That these things are of ultimate value because this is the way our world is made right with God. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't tell them you are to be my witnesses, but he tells them how this is going to be accomplished. Did you notice this? The way they are going to go about doing this, 
Look at verse 44 with me. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's saying, you know how you're going to help people recognize this? You yourself have to also understand this. That all of the scriptures speak to these things about Jesus, about his plan, about God's love for us. We have to understand the scriptures in order to be witnesses to his message. We have to read them to understand God's plan of salvation, his love for us, his plan to redeem. Notice he doesn't tell them, get ready to leave this material world and escape to heaven. No, he says, you know, I died and rose again for repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed not just to the Jews. And notice he says to all nations. He's saying, come on, people, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work to proclaim the good news in word and deed. We are to be his witnesses. And to fulfill this mission, you need to understand the scriptures and be assured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, this is why whenever you go to a church, oftentimes there's so much scripture reading. You know why? Because the scriptures actually tell us about what Jesus has done. Tell us about ourselves. Tell us about our world. It helps us to understand everything rightly. And that's why we keep coming back to the scriptures. And this is the first thing Jesus does with the disciples. He says, hey, let's go back to the scriptures. Let me help you understand what God is up to and has been and what you've been missing. Because this gives you assurance again. This gives you the confidence to be able to speak about what God is up to. It's the first thing. That's the first thing he tells them. This is how you're going to accomplish this. The second thing I want you to notice is in verse 46 again, where it says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And I think this is something that often gets missed. But although Jesus gives this a mission, he never says it's going to be very simple, nor does he ever say it's going to be easy. But he actually says, remember how I suffered Going into mission is going to involve suffering. This is something no one wants to hear, okay? But the reality is, if Jesus Christ himself was opposed, shouldn't his followers expect to be opposed as well? This is an aspect of the mission. He's telling them, hey, this is going to be hard. You know, there's a reason they were sitting in a room locked Because we're told in John 20, verse 19, they were afraid of the Jews. Because if they went after Jesus, why wouldn't they go after his disciples? It's kind of logical. And we see in the letters of Paul or in 1 Peter, it talks to the church who are suffering. Suffering because they're being persecuted for this message that remains unpopular in many ways. And listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 here. This is verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter is writing to these early Christians who are suffering, who are being persecuted, and he's telling them, do not lose heart. The mission will not be without challenges, opposition. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3 that he talks about how he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and because he wants to share in his suffering. Suffering is a part of mission. Suffering is a part of following Christ. These are things that the scriptures say are here. You know, and and you're probably thinking, Iron, you're not doing a very good job of selling this mission part, you know? But God doesn't leave us there and Jesus doesn't leave us there. But the third thing he says is, hey, you have the scriptures. You will suffer. But Jesus also says, you will not be alone. Because in verse 49, it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit, he says, is coming, okay, on you as you live your mission. You are not going to be alone. Jesus does not issue a mission without providing what you need. And the Spirit of God would come... When we need encouragement, when we need strength, when we need courage, humility, wisdom. And Jesus says, trust that I am going to be with you in this mission. Because that's what allows you to endure suffering, opposition, persecution, where people dismiss you thinking you're a fool for believing some of these things. But Jesus says, you are not going to be alone when you go out to be my witnesses. That's his promise. See? So he gives us assurance. He gives us a mission. And thirdly and lastly, he gives a blessing. Look at verses 50 to 52. I love this scene here. And likely, this is not the same day, but this is probably many, many days later after he spent time with them, and we know this from the beginning of Acts. But it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And when he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Notice Luke mentions this word, Bless them. Blessed twice. This is the last thing Jesus does before he ascends into heaven. He gives them a blessing. A blessing. What is that? What was it like, you know, I don't know, a pep talk of some sort? Is it, what's he, he's already promised them the Holy Spirit. What is this blessing? You know, think of this as Jesus' benediction for them. His good word. You know, think of going back to Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Where we often pray at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
What is this blessing that Jesus is giving to his disciples? He's telling them, God will be with you. It's going to be okay. I've been resurrected. Go and be my witnesses. You're not alone. I am with you until the end of the age. See? And here is a group of people who only a few days before were locked in a room, not really believing or even confident that Jesus actually resurrected from the grave. And we're told they returned to Jerusalem and head to the temple with great joy worshiping Jesus. Now, worshiping Jesus, wait a second, wasn't that the thing that got Jesus in trouble in the first place? When Jesus claimed to be God, that was the thing that triggered the religious leaders to say, he is a blasphemer and he needs to be put to death. But what do the disciples do? They're recognizing something. They're assured of something that Jesus is God, so they worship him. And they know he's alive. This is why they don't go back to that, the tomb. Did you ever realize, have you thought about no one actually really knows where the tomb of Christ is? I bet if you go to Jerusalem, they'll tell you, here it is. You know, it makes for a very good uh, tourist, you know, uh, exhibit. But no one really knows because you know why? It didn't matter to the Christians. Because if he was dead, you go back and turn it into a shrine. But if Jesus was really alive, what does it matter where his tomb was in the first place? It doesn't matter because you have him, right? So where do they head? They don't go to the tomb. They don't go to their homes. They go to the temple. And they do what there? And they go and they bless God. They are worshiping God. They are saying, we are here to proclaim what God has done. The disciples have gone from doubt, fear, trepidation, being driven by their own ambitions. But now they're united in worship and purpose of the risen Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder Christianity turned the world upside down. And this, I mean, this movement here from beginning to end of this whole passage is fear, doubt, trepidation to great joy. You know, and I want to ask you, do you feel that as you think about who Christ is and what he's done for you, do you feel joy? Do you feel this sense of, my goodness, here's what Jesus has done. The resurrected Lord has forgiven me. He has said the world that we live in matters that we are to now go and make it the place that reflects the character and the beauty, the justice and the fullness of God here. And in courage, he says, now the church is to go out in great humility and love in word and deed to show the world this is who God is. It's a beautiful ending to this story. It's, it's a beautiful kind of way to say, Hey, there is this incredible hopefulness that Easter brings. You know, as I've been uh, thinking about the disciples here, it reminds me of a book I read uh, during Christmas season. It was very popular a few years ago. It's nonfiction. It's called Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. Have you guys read this? 
You know, it's, a, it's this incredible story of the 1936 University of Washington crew team. And they were a school that didn't really have a very good crew team at all. They were obscure. They were this backward you know, university all the way on the West Coast. And this team eventually goes to the 1936 Berlin Olympics in front of Hitler and wins gold. Now, few sports carry this kind of aristocratic pedigree of crew, right? When you think of crew, you think like Cambridge. You think Harvard, Princeton, you know, Yale, whatever. And, but no one imagined a crew from Washington, of all places, could be competitive. They built a team of kids raised on farms in logging towns and near shipyards. They worked hard. They blew away their rivals from Cal. They bested the best universities in our country. They make it to the Olympic team. And the author is trying to understand how did this happen? How was it possible that this ragtag group actually bested those with the pedigree of many, many years of rowing? And Brown says this about how they worked. The greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen are necessarily made of conflicting stuff, of oil and water, fire and earth. On the one hand, they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself, in his or her ability to endure hardship and to prevail over adversity is likely even to attempt something as audacious as competitive rowing at the highest levels. The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering and so few opportunities for glory that only the most tenaciously self-reliant and self-motivated are likely to succeed at all. And here's the interesting thing. And yet, at the same time, and this is key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have outstanding coxswains or stroke oars or bowmen, but they have no stars. It's a team effort. The perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water. The single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, not the self. He's saying part of what makes a crew team so successful is their ability to say we need to work synchronized together in perfection. You can't have egos. You can't be about yourself. You can't expect one person to carry the team. It doesn't work that way in crew. And that means they have to understand and trust each other. And this is a story about how that trust is built in this team. And what you begin to see in the disciples is something very similar. They no longer become about themselves. But in the experience of knowing, knowing the resurrected Christ, 
the blessing they receive from him and the mission they're given, they realize this is about what God is doing. And what I need to do is go out and give myself to this mission with everyone else. It's no longer about them. And when that begins to happen, they're freed. Freed from the pressures of the world. Freed from everything else that's on their mind. Freed from fear. Freed from what others think about them. Freed from all their hopes and dreams that are kind of like shackling them into this world. And they're saying, no, there's something more. And God is calling us to it. And they go out with great joy, mega joy and worship of God to say, God, will you work? Will you be at work? And that is our hope, my friends. We're being invited into that. To say, die to self. See and believe the resurrected Christ has done something audacious and incredible. And Jesus invites us to come and join him on mission. Do you believe that? He invites us into that this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us this mega joy that the disciples had. That by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see. That the resurrected Jesus is the one who forgives us. Who renews us. Who tells us that this world matters. And that we are now called to be your witnesses. To our friends, to our neighbors, to our community. And we ask that you would give us faith and strength to go and follow you. Give us your blessing so we would know all of this is true. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.